Chapter 19, Part 1 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer. Translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 19 Thoroughgoing Skepticism and Thoroughgoing Eschatology. Bibliography William Vreda. The Messianic Secret in the Gospels, forming a contribution also to the understanding of the Gospel of Mark. Göttingen, 1901, 286 pages. Albert Schweitzer, The Secret of the Messiahship and the Passion, A Sketch of the Life of Jesus. Tumingen and Leipzig, 1901, 109 pages. The coincidence between the work of Vreda and the sketch of the life of Jesus is not more surprising in regard to the time of their appearance than in regard to the character of their contents. They appeared upon the self-same day, their titles are almost identical, and their agreement in the criticism of the modern historical conception of the life of Jesus extends sometimes to the very phraseology. And yet, they are written from quite different standpoints, one from the point of view of literary criticism, the other from that of the historical recognition of eschatology. It seems to be the fate of the Markan hypothesis that at the decisive periods its problems should always be attacked simultaneously and independently from the literary and the historical sides, and the results declared in two different forms which corroborate each other. So it was in the case of Weisse and Vilke, so it is again now, when, retaining the assumption of the priority of Mark, the historicity of the hitherto accepted view of the life of Jesus, based upon the Markan narrative, is called into question. The meaning of that is that the literary and the eschatological view, which have hitherto been marching parallel on either flank to the advance of modern theology, have now united their forces, brought theology to a halt, surrounded it, and compelled it to give battle. That in the last three or four years so much has been written, in which this enveloping movement has been ignored, does not alter the real position of modern historical theology in the least. The fact is deserving of notice, that during this period the study of the subject has not made a step in advance, but has kept moving to and fro upon the old lines with wearisome iteration and has thrown itself with excessive zeal into the work of popularization, simply because it was incapable of advancing. And even if it professes gratitude to Vreda for the very interesting historical point which he has brought into the discussion, and is also willing to admit that thoroughgoing eschatology has advanced the solution of many problems, these are mere demonstrations which are quite inadequate to raise the blockade of modern theology by the allied forces. Supposing that only a half, nay, only a third, of the critical arguments which are common to Vreda and the sketch of the life of Jesus are sound, then the modern historical view of the history is wholly ruined. The reader of Vreda's book cannot help feeling that here no quarter is given, and anyone who goes carefully through the present writer's sketch must come to see that between the modern historical and the eschatological life of Jesus, no compromise is possible. Thoroughgoing skepticism and thoroughgoing eschatology may, in their union, 
either destroy or be destroyed by modern historical theology but they cannot combine with it and enable it to advance any more than they can be advanced by it we are confronted with a decisive issue as with strauss's life of jesus so with the surprising agreement in the critical basis of these two schools we are not here considering the respective solutions which they offer there has entered into the domain of the theology of the day a force with which it cannot possibly ally itself its whole territory is threatened it must either reconquer it step by step or else surrender it it has no longer the right to advance a single assertion until it has taken up a definite position in regard to the fundamental questions raised by the new criticism modern historical theology is no doubt still far from recognizing this it is warned that the dike is letting in water and sends a couple of masons to repair the leak as if the leak did not mean that the whole masonry is undermined and must be rebuilt from the foundation to vary the metaphor theology comes home to find the broker's marks on all the furniture and goes on as before quite comfortably ignoring the fact that it will lose everything if it does not pay its debts the critical objections which freda and the sketch agree in bringing against the modern treatment of the subject are as follows in order to find in mark the life of jesus of which it is in search modern theology is obliged to read between the lines a whole host of things and those often the most important and then comes to foist them upon the text by means of psychological conjecture it is determined to find evidence in mark of a development of jesus a development of the disciples and a development of the outer circumstances and professes in so doing to be only reproducing the views and indications of the evangelist in reality however there is not a word of all this in the evangelist and when his interpreters are asked what are the hints and indications on which they base their assertions they have nothing to offer save argumenta e silentio mark knows nothing of any development in jesus he knows nothing of any pedagogic considerations which are supposed to have determined the conduct of jesus towards the disciples and the people he knows nothing of any conflict in the mind of jesus between a spiritual and a popular political messianic ideal he does not know either that in this respect there was any difference between the view of jesus and that of the people he knows nothing of the idea that the use of the ass at the triumphal entry symbolized a non-political messiahship he knows nothing of the idea that the question about the messiah's being the son of david had something to do with this alternative being political and non-political he does not know either that jesus explained the secret of the passion to the disciples nor that they had any understanding of it he only knows that from first to last they were in all respects equally wanting in understanding he does not know that the first period was a period of success and the second a period of failure he represents the pharisees and herodians as from chapter three verse six onwards resolved upon the death of jesus while the people down to the very last day when he preached in the temple are enthusiastically loyal to him all these things of which the evangelist says nothing 
and they are foundations of the modern view, should first be proved, if proved they can be. They ought not to be simply read into the text as something self-evident. For it is just those things which appear so self-evident to the prevailing critical temper, which are in reality the least evident of all. Another hitherto self-evident point, the quote-unquote historical kernel, which it has been customary to extract from the narratives, must be given up until it is proved, if it is capable of proof, that we can and ought to distinguish between the kernel and the husk. We may take all that is reported as either historical or unhistorical, but in respect to the definite predictions of the passion, death, and resurrection, we ought to give up taking the reference to the passion as historical, and letting the rest go. We may accept the idea of the atoning death, or we may reject it. But we ought not to ascribe to Jesus a feeble, anemic version of this idea, while setting down to the account of the Pauline theology the interpretation of the Passion which we actually find in Mark. Whatever the results obtained by the aid of the historical kernel, the method pursued is the same. Says Vreda, quote, It is detached from its context and transformed into something different. It finally comes to this, that each critic retains whatever portion of the traditional sayings can be fitted into his construction of the facts and his conception of historical possibility, and rejects the rest. The psychological explanation of motive and the psychological connection of the events and actions which such critics have proposed to find in Mark simply do not exist. That being so, Nothing is to be made out of his account by the application of a priori psychology. A vast quantity of treasures of scholarship and erudition, of art and artifice, which the Markan hypothesis has gathered into its storehouse in the two generations of its existence to aid it in constructing its life of Jesus, has become worthless and can be of no further service to true historical research. Theology has been simplified. What would become of it if that did not happen every hundred years or so? And the simplification was badly needed, for no one since Strauss had cleared away its impedimenta. Thoroughgoing skepticism and thoroughgoing eschatology, between them, are compelling theology to read the Markan text again with simplicity of mind. The simplicity consists in dispensing with the connecting links with which it has been accustomed to discover between the sections of the narrative, in looking at each one separately, and recognizing that it is difficult to pass from one to the other. The material with which it has hitherto been usual to solder the sections together into a life of Jesus will not stand the temperature test. Exposed to the cold air of critical skepticism, it cracks. When the furnace of eschatology is heated to a certain point, the solderings melt. In both cases, the sections all fall apart. Formerly, it was possible to book through tickets at the Supplementary Psychological Knowledge Office, which enabled those traveling in the interests of Life of Jesus construction to use express trains, thus avoiding the inconvenience of having to stop at every little station change and run the risk of missing their connection the ticket office is now closed 
there is a station at the end of each section of the narrative and the connections are not guaranteed the fact is it is not simply that there is no very obvious psychological connection between the sections in almost every case there is a positive break in the connection and there is a great deal in the Markan narrative which is inexplicable and even self-contradictory in their statement of the problems raised by this want of connection vreda and the sketch are in the most exact agreement that these difficulties are not artificially constructed has been shown by our survey of the history of the attempts to write the life of jesus in the course of which these problems emerge one after another after bruno bauer had by anticipation grasped them all in their complexity how do the demoniacs know that jesus is the son of god why does the blind man at jericho address him as the son of david when no one else knows his messianic dignity how was it that these occurrences did not give a new direction to the thoughts of the people in regard to jesus how did the messianic entry come about how was it possible without provoking the interference of the roman garrison of occupation why is it as completely ignored in the subsequent controversies as if it had never taken place why was it not brought up at the trial of jesus says vreda the messianic acclamation at the entry into jerusalem is in mark quite an isolated incident it has no sequel neither is there any preparation for it beforehand Close quote. why does jesus in mark chapter four verses ten through twelve speak of the parabolic form of discourse as designed to conceal the mystery of the kingdom of god whereas the explanation which he proceeds to give to the disciples has nothing mysterious about it what is the mystery of the kingdom of god why does jesus forbid his miracles to be made known even in cases where there is no apparent purpose for the prohibition why is his messiahship a secret and yet no secret since it is known not only to the disciples but to the demoniacs the blind man at jericho the multitude at jerusalem which must as bruno bauer expresses it have fallen from heaven and to the high priest why does jesus reveal his messiahship to the disciples at caesarea philippi not at the moment when he sends them forth to preach how does peter know without having been told by jesus that the messiahship belongs to his master why must it remain a secret until the resurrection why does jesus indicate his messiahship only by the title son of man and why is it that this title is so far from prominent in primitive christian theology what is the meaning of the statement that jesus at jerusalem discovered a difficulty in the fact that the messiah was described as at once david's son and david's lord how are we to explain the fact that jesus had to open the eyes of the people to the greatness of the baptist's office subsequently to the mission of the twelve and to enlighten the disciples themselves in regard to it during the descent from the mount of transfiguration why should this be described in matthew chapter eleven verses fourteen and fifteen as a mystery difficult to grasp if ye can receive it and he that hath ears to hear let him hear what is the meaning of the saying that he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the baptist does the baptist then not enter into the kingdom of heaven how is the kingdom of heaven subjected to violence since the days of the baptist 
who are the violent? What is the Baptist intended to understand from the answer of Jesus? What importance was attached to the miracles by Jesus himself? What office must they have caused the people to attribute to him? Why is the discourse at the sending out of the twelve filled with predictions of persecutions which experience had given no reason to anticipate, and which did not, as a matter of fact, occur? What is the meaning of the saying in Matthew chapter 10 verse 23 about the imminent coming of the Son of Man, seeing that the disciples, after all, returned to Jesus without its being fulfilled? Why does Jesus leave the people just when his work among them is most successful, and journey northwards? Why had he, immediately after the sending forth of the twelve, manifested a desire to withdraw himself from the multitude who were longing for salvation? How does the multitude, mentioned in Mark chapter 8 verse 34, suddenly appear at Caesarea Philippi? Why is its presence no longer implied in Mark chapter 9 verse 30? How could Jesus possibly have traveled unrecognized through Galilee? And how could he have avoided being thronged at Capernaum, although he stayed at the house? How came he so suddenly to speak to his disciples of his suffering and dying and rising again, without, moreover, explaining to them either the natural or the moral wherefore? Says Vreda, quote, there is no trace of any attempt on the part of Jesus to break this strange thought gradually to the disciples. The prediction is always flung down before the disciples without preparation. It is, in fact, a characteristic feature of these sayings, that all attempt to aid the understanding of the disciples is lacking. Did Jesus journey to Jerusalem with the purpose of working there, or of dying there? How comes it that in Mark chapter 10 verse 39 he holds out to the sons of Zebedee the prospect of drinking his cup and being baptized with his baptism? And how can he, after speaking so decidedly of the necessity of his death, think it possible in Gethsemane that the cup might yet pass from him? Who are the undefined many, for whom, according to Mark chapter 10 verse 45, and chapter 14 verse 24 his death shall serve as a ransom how came it that jesus alone was arrested why were no witnesses called at his trial to testify that he had given himself out to be the messiah how is it that on the morning after his arrest the temper of the multitude seems to be completely changed so that no one stirs a finger to help him in what form does jesus conceive the resurrection which he promises to his disciples, to be combined with the coming on the clouds of heaven to which he points his judge. In what relation do these predictions stand to the prospect held out at the time of the sending forth of the twelve, but not realized, of the immediate appearance of the Son of Man? What is the meaning of the further prediction on the way to Gethsemane, from Mark chapter 14, verse 28, that after his resurrection, he will go before the disciples into Galilee. How is the other version of this saying, from Mark chapter 16, verse 7, to be explained, according to which it means, as spoken by the angel, that the disciples are to journey to Galilee to have their first meeting with the risen Jesus there, whereas on the lips of Jesus it betokened that, just as now as a sufferer he was going before them to Galilee, to Jerusalem, 
so after his resurrection he would go before them from jerusalem to galilee and what was to happen there these problems were covered up by the naturalistic psychology as by a light snowdrift the snow has melted and they now stand out from the narratives like black points of rock it is no longer allowable to avoid these questions or to solve them each by itself by softening them down and giving them an interpretation by which the reported facts acquire a quite different significance from that which they bear for the evangelist either the markan text as it stands is historical and therefore to be retained or it is not and then it should be given up what is really unhistorical is any softening down of the wording and the meaning which it naturally bears the skeptical and eschatological schools however go still farther in company if the connection in mark is really no connection it is important to try to discover whether any principle can be discovered in this want of connection can any order be brought into the chaos to this the answer is in the affirmative the complete want of connection with all its self-contradictions is ultimately due to the fact that two representations of the life of jesus or to speak more accurately of his public ministry are here crushed into one a natural and a deliberately supernatural representation a dogmatic element has intruded itself into the description of this life something which has no concern with the events which form the outward course of that life this dogmatic element is the messianic secret of jesus and all the secrets and concealments which go along with it hence the irrational and self-contradictory features of the presentation of jesus out of which a rational psychology can make only something which is unhistorical and does violence to the text since it must necessarily get rid of the constant want of connection and self-contradiction which belongs to the essence of the narrative and portray a jesus who was the messiah not one who at once was and was not messiah as the evangelist depicts him when rational psychology conceives him as one who was messiah but not in the sense expected by the people that is a concession to the self-contradictions of the markan representation which however does justice neither to the text nor to the history which it records since the gospel does not contain the faintest hint that the contradiction was of this nature up to this point up to the complete reconstruction of the system which runs through the disconnectedness and the tracing back of the dogmatic element to the messianic secret there extends a close agreement between thoroughgoing skepticism and thoroughgoing eschatology the critical arguments are identical the construction is analogous and based on the same principle the defenders of the modern psychological view cannot therefore play off one school against the other as one of them proposed to do but must deal with them both at once they differ only when they explain whence the system that runs through the disconnectedness comes here the ways divide as bauer saw long ago the inconsistency between the public life of jesus and his messianic claim lies either in the nature of the jewish messianic conception or in the representation of the evangelist there is on the one hand the eschatological solution 
which at one stroke raises the Markin account as it stands, with all its disconnectedness and inconsistencies into genuine history. And there is, on the other hand, the literary solution, which regards the incongruous dogmatic element as interpolated by the earliest evangelist into the tradition, and therefore strikes out the messianic claim altogether from the historical life of Jesus. Tertium non datur. But in some respects, it really hardly matters which of the two solutions one adopts. They are both merely wooden towers erected upon the solid main building of the consentient critical induction which offers the enigmas detailed above to modern historical theology. It is interesting in this connection that Vreda's skepticism is just as constructive as the eschatological outline of the life of Jesus in the sketch. Bruno Bauer chose the literary solution because he thought that we had no evidence for an eschatological expectation existing at the time of Christ. Freda, though he follows Johannes Weiss in assuming the existence of a Jewish eschatological messianic expectation, finds in the gospel only the Christian conception of the Messiah. He thinks, quote, If Jesus really knew himself to be the Messiah and designated himself as such, the genuine tradition is so closely interwoven with later accretions that it is not easy to recognize it. In any case, Jesus cannot, according to Vreda, have spoken of his messianic coming in the way which the synoptists report. The messiahship of Jesus, as we find it in the Gospels, is a product of early Christian theology, correcting history according to its own conceptions. It is therefore necessary to distinguish in Mark between the reported events which constitute the outward course of the history of Jesus, and the dogmatic idea which claims to lay down the lines of its inward course. The principle of division is found in the contradictions. The recorded events form, according to Vreda, the following picture. Jesus came forward as a teacher, first and principally in Galilee. He was surrounded by a company of disciples, went about with them, and gave them instruction. To some of them he accorded a special confidence. A larger multitude sometimes attached itself to him, in addition to the disciples. He is fond of discoursing in parables. Besides the teaching, there are the miracles. These make a stir, and he is thronged by the multitudes. He gives special attention to the cases of demoniacs. He is in such close touch with the people that he does not hesitate to associate even with publicans and sinners. Towards the law, he takes up an attitude of some freedom. He encounters the opposition of the Pharisees and the Jewish authorities. They set traps for him and endeavor to bring about his fall. Finally, they succeed when he ventures to show himself not only on Judean soil, but in Jerusalem. He remains passive and is condemned to death. The Roman administration supports the Jewish authorities. Continues Freda, quote, The texture of the Markan narrative, as we know it, is not complete until to the warp of these general historical notions there is added a strong weft of ideas of a dogmatic character, close quote, the substance of which is that, quote, Jesus, the bearer of a special office to which he was appointed by God, becomes a higher supernatural being. 
If this is the case, however, then, quote, the motives of his conduct are not derived from human characteristics, human aims and necessities. The one motive which runs throughout is rather a divine decree which lies beyond human understanding. This he seeks to fulfill alike in his actions and his sufferings. The teaching of Jesus is accordingly supernatural. On this assumption, the want of understanding of the disciples to whom he communicates, without commentary, unconnected portions of this supernatural knowledge becomes natural and explicable. The people are, moreover, essentially, quote, non-receptive of revelation, close quote. Quote, it is these motifs, and not those which are inherently historical, which give movement and direction to the Markan narrative. It is they that give the general color. On them, naturally, depends the main interest. It is to them that the thought of the writer is really directed. The consequence is that the general picture offered by the gospel is not an historical representation of the life of Jesus. Only some faded remnants of such an impression have been taken over into the supra-historical religious view. In this sense, the Gospel of Mark belongs to the history of dogma. The two conceptions of the life of Jesus, the natural and the supernatural, are brought, not without inconsistencies, into a kind of harmony by means of the idea of intentional secrecy. The messiahship of Jesus is concealed in his life as in a closed dark lantern, which, however, is not quite closed. Otherwise, one could not see that it was there, and allows a few bright beams to escape. The idea of a secret which must remain a secret until the resurrection of Jesus could only arise at a time when nothing was known of a messianic claim of Jesus during his life upon earth, that is to say, at a time when the messiahship of Jesus was thought of as beginning with the resurrection. But that is a weighty piece of indirect historical evidence that Jesus did not really profess to be the messiah at all. The positive fact which is to be inferred from this is that the appearances of the risen Jesus produced a sudden revolution in his disciples' conception of him. The resurrection is, for Vreda, the real messianic event in the life of Jesus. Who is responsible, then, for introducing this singular feature, so destructive of the real historical connection, into the life of Jesus, which is in reality that of a teacher? It is quite impossible, Vreda argues, that the idea of the messianic secret is the invention of Mark. Quote, a thing like that is not done by a single individual. It must, therefore, have been a view which was current in certain circles, and was held by a considerable number though not necessarily perhaps by a very great number of persons. To say this is not to deny that Mark had a share, and perhaps a considerable share, in the creation of the view which he sets forth. The motifs themselves are doubtless not, in part at least, peculiar to the evangelist, but the concrete embodiment of them is certainly his own work and to this extent we may speak of a special Markan point of view which manifests itself here and there. Where the line is to be drawn between what is traditional and what is individual cannot always be determined even by a careful examination directed to this end. We must leave it commingled as we find it. The Markan narrative has therefore arisen from the impulse 
to give a messianic form to the earthly life of jesus this impulse was however restrained by the impression and tradition of the non-messianic character of the life of jesus which were still strong and vivid and it was therefore not able wholly to recast the material but could only bore its way into it and force it apart as the roots of the bramble disintegrate a rock in the gospel literature which arose on the basis of mark the messianic secret becomes gradually of more subordinate importance and the life of jesus more messianic in character until in the fourth gospel he openly comes before the people with messianic claims in estimating the value of this construction we must not attach too much importance to its a priori assumptions and difficulties in this respect vreda's position is much more precarious than that of his precursor bruno bauer according to the latter the interpolation of the messianic secret is the personal absolutely original act of the evangelist vreda thinks of it as a collective act representing the new conception as moulded by the tradition before it was fixed by the evangelist that is very much more difficult to carry through tradition alters its materials in a different way from that in which we find them altered in mark tradition transforms from without mark's way of drawing secret threads of a different material through the texture of the tradition without otherwise altering it is purely literary and could only be the work of an individual person the creative tradition would have carried out the theory of the messianic secret in the life of jesus much more boldly and logically that is to say at once more arbitrarily and more consistently the only alternative is to distinguish two stages of tradition in early christianity a naive freely working earlier stage and a more artificial later stage confined to a smaller circle of a more literary character vreda does as a matter of fact propose to find in mark traces of a simpler and bolder transformation which leaving aside the messianic secret makes jesus an openly professed messiah and is therefore of a distinct origin from the conception of the secret christ to this tradition may belong he thinks the entry into jerusalem and the confession before the high priest since the narratives naively imply an openly avowed messiahship the word naively is out of place here a really naive tradition which intended to represent the entry of jesus as messianic would have done so in quite a different way from mark and would not have stultified itself so curiously as we find done even in matthew where the galilean passover pilgrims after the messianic entry answer the question of the people of jerusalem as to who it was whom they were acclaiming with the words this is the prophet jesus from nazareth of galilee from matthew chapter 21 verse 11 end of chapter 19 part 1